our Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Today we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 10. And I have been already saying that Christians who have been called by the gospel of grace and have received it, they have been called by it and received it, are privileged characters. We ought to see ourselves as privileged characters. We ought to see ourselves as being in possession of some of the greatest treasure that any human being could have. And the only reason why we are privileged characters and placed in the sphere of blessing is because we are in union with Jesus Christ. That is the only reason. There is no other reason than that. So there are blessings from this passage of Scripture that come to the Christian and should be enjoyed by the Christian and celebrated by the Christian while they walk around this earth while they go to their jobs, while they function in their families, while they just drive in their car, they should be celebrating. You have to be celebrating something. You have to know something to celebrate it. But Christians ought to be people at all phases of our life that are growing in our ability to celebrate our salvation. So I've already been examining believers blessed possessions in Christ so far we have looked at our father's blessing that I mean the blessings that come from the father remember this passage of scripture this long Greek sentence from verses at least to 12 verses from verses 3 on onward to verse 14 is a long sentence and it's going to include the father the son and then the spirit so we looked at the father and the blessings that came and come from the father are that he chose us, that he has adopted us, and of course he is, he's adopted us by his deep love and by his deep desire and good pleasure. Uh, no one twisted God's arm in this deal. All right, God willingly does this out of who he is, out of his character, and of course he's also accepted us in the beloved. He has done it by his grace, not based on any works you can do, I could do, anybody could do, but based on his free grace that we have these things. Now, today, I want you to take note of our possessions that come from the Son, Jesus Christ, second person of the Holy Trinity. And no matter where you go in Scripture, it is very difficult to get away from the centrality of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is the center of the Word of God. Everything is pointing at Him and what He is doing in His work and what He's accomplishing. And so the first thing, the first possession that we see in this passage of Scripture that we have and that comes from the Son, you've heard it before if you've been a Christian, but I want you to hear it again because repetition is really how we learn we don't usually learn it the first time we hear it we learn it probably around the seventh time we hear it 
all right, because that's who we are. We are human beings, and we don't get it right away. And God knows that, so he repeats things in letters and books of the Bible, all right? So the first possession that is ours in Christ and is in verse number seven, and it says this, in him we have redemption through his blood. So the first thing we have, and if you notice, it says there we have it's in our possession. It's already ours. We have redemption through his blood. Now, redemption is that word that should bring to our mind the idea of buying something. God is buying something. He is ransoming something. He's redeeming something. And of course, in this case, he is buying, the, the word depicts release or liberation of a captive who has been enslaved by something. Of course, we, as human beings, have been enslaved by sin. Sin is the thing that reigns over us, that we give into all the time. It's got this power to it, and of course, our passions and desires are lured to it. The world promotes it. Satan is behind it, and so therefore, we give into it. And so the only way is somebody can be bought back or bought out of this slave market of sin is if somebody buys us, if somebody purchases us, all right? So the Word of God is telling us, listen, the blood is the ransom that was paid by Christ in order to effect release from sin and the guilt that comes with sin. Because there is a guilt that comes with us sinning. Paul, in another book, in Romans, says... For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified uh, as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And then it says, whom God displayed publicly as the propitiation in His blood through faith. So in the Word of God, we are released by someone buying us. So that means that there can be no redemption without someone paying the price. It does not come free. Well, let me say it like this. From our vantage point, salvation is free. It is a gift. But redemption itself is very costly. In fact, the cost is infinite. So therefore, that means it's too expensive for us to pay. No humans could pay the redemption price for their own sin. So the price was Christ's blood, and the object of that price was our eternal souls. Even back in the psalmist, when David is meditating upon what the Lord says, he says something very interesting in Psalm 49. No need to turn there, but in verse 7 he says, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give God a ransom for him. And then he says in verse 6 of that same chapter, he says, for the redemption of his soul is costly and should cease from trying forever. Cease from trying to buy the soul of either yourself or someone else. But nonetheless... Without someone buying your soul, you would be lost forever. So redemption has this 
sense to it that someone must pay for your sin. Someone must rescue you from that slave market that we're all born into, all that sin that reigns over us. Now, who was the ransom paid to? Well, some say that the ransom was paid to Satan because Satan held fallen men under his bondage. In other words, Satan was the kidnapper who snatched us away from the Father's house. And Christ came and paid a ransom to the devil to set us free. But you already know that that's sit right, right? You know that doesn't sit right. If you're, getting, if you're growing in discernment, you know there's something wrong there. All right? So if that be the case, it would be the kidnapper who had the upper hand because it would be the kidnapper who would set the ransom price. If the ransom was paid to Satan, then it would be Satan who was the victor and not Christ. So, no, the ransom was not paid to Satan, but the ransom was paid to God the Father. Because God was the one who had to be satisfied. So when the Bible speaks of ransom, it speaks of that ransom being paid not to a criminal, but to the one who is owed the price of redemption and the one who is the offended party in the whole complex of sin. And of course, the offended party because of our sin is God himself. That's what sin is. Sin is rebellion against God. At any level, to any extent, that's what sin is. And so therefore, we have offended God. We have broken his word. And so therefore, the price, the ransom, had to be paid to the Father. So you see, Jesus offered himself in payment to the Father for us. And in doing so, made redemption for his people, redeeming them from captivity. So in, in, in thinking about this particular point, this is a great possession that we have. We have been redeemed from the slavery of sin. Now, this is so rich that I really don't want you to miss the picture, especially that one that we find in the Old Testament because Israel had a, cus a custom, if I want to call it that, called the, the custom of the kinsman redeemer, that the kinsman redeemer was a relative who could authorize to pay off his relative's debt. And that could even include even uh, a bride price in that, now, that's found in Leviticus. No need to turn there this morning. But in ancient Israel, it was the custom for a family to take care of the debts of its members. If one member uh, in a family became poor and had to sell off part of his possessions, which was given to them by God within the tribes, all right? so therefore, if they became so poor they had to sell it off, that, that property somewhere down the line had to be bought back by someone and be brought back to the tribe. Right? That's what had to be done. So, see, a kinsman could come and pay the price. And, of course, kinsman means relative. Right? He's my kin. Right? He's my kinsman. My relative all right, could come and pay the price of what the property was, would be. Would, uh, cost and redeem it and buy it back now 
But not everyone was qualified to be a kinsman redeemer. If you remember the story of Ruth and Boaz in the Old Testament, Boaz acted as a kinsman redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. And there were three things that if you were to search out this particular uh, subject in Scripture, there are three things a kinsman redeemer had to be. All right? Number one, he had to be a near relative. All right? So that, that had to be the first thing. You had to be related somehow to that, that person. Now, if... I want to relate it back to us also. Because if the Father did not adopt us, remember adoption is very important, and make us sons, make us children, then we could not be a relative of Jesus to redeem us. Also, Jesus Christ had to become related to us before he could redeem us. And how did he do that? He became flesh. He became flesh and blood so he could die for us on the cross and paid the ransom. So both of those things had to be there. So when he was born into this world in human flesh, he became our near kinsman. And he will, re, he will remain our kinsman for all eternity. He had to be relative. A second thing that had to take place in the qualifications of a redeemer is that he had to be able to pay the price. You had to be able to do that. And so in the Old Testament book of Ruth, again, Ruth and Naomi were too poor to redeem themselves. So Boaz, a near relative, stepped up to the plate, and of course he ended up buying their property back and then taking one in marriage. So when it comes to, uh, when it comes to the redemption of sinners... Nobody but Jesus Christ is rich enough to pay the price. Nobody is. So, indeed, the payment of money can never set sinners free. It is the shedding of the precious blood of Christ that has accomplished redemption. And so, therefore, in our text, we have redemption through Christ's blood. So, because he gave himself for us, he purchased for us an eternal Redemption, it says that in Hebrew. So, see, the Lord was powerful enough and wealthy enough to be able to buy us back and, and secure our salvation eternally. No one could have done that. So, Jesus qualified on both points. There's a third point, though. And the third point was they have to be willing to pay the price. They may have had the money. In fact, in Ruth and, uh, Ruth and Naomi's case, their first relative did have the money to buy them. He was wealthy enough to do it, but he was not willing to do it. And so therefore, see, the near kinsman in Ruth was not willing to redeem Ruth, so Boaz was free to purchase both the property and a wife. So the near kinsman had the money in the first place, but not the motivation. He was... He was afraid, ultimately, that he was going to jeopardize his own family inheritance. inheritance. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 5, what do we see? That God is willing. In fact, it says that he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of his will. So God was, in this case and in our case, that he was able, of course, to pay the price, he was a relative because 
of us being adopted into his family and him becoming a man to be related to us, and then he was willing to pay the price. He qualified on, at all points. So these are examples that can be applied to the work of Messiah in his atonement. In the ransom that Christ pays, he works as a kinsman redeemer for his people, as our elder brother, he pays the indebtedness that would have uh, that was incurred by before God, and then he buys us out of indentured servitude by paying the price for our freedom, and then ultimately he restores us to our inheritance in the Father's kingdom. So the Lord does this, and so redemption has a wealth of meaning to it. That's just skimming the surface. So that means that Christ came and paid the ransom in order to secure the release of his people who were held captive by sin, that Christ purchased eternal redemption to those who are saints, who are faithful, who are in Christ, who are chosen, who are adopted, who are accepted in the beloved, that those people have something to pray God about because of the precious possession they have in their own redemption. You see that? No one can take that away. That is yours, man. And you need to celebrate that. And that's what he's saying here. That's what he's laying down for us. He's laying down the, found, the foundation for believers to say, listen, my head, Jesus Christ, and the Father, Son, and Spirit has so secured my salvation that there's no reason for me to be discouraged in this life or in the future of where I'm heading because of what Christ has done. Just last night I was in the hospital visiting um, a dear sister in Christ that I, I knew early in my ministry and uh, she is dying of, uh, right now it's bone cancer, but uh, had a word of prayer with her, but it was so and she's really in a lot of pain physically, but I prayed I said, Lord, what am I going to pray when I go in there? You know what I prayed? I prayed this. I, I said, Lord, thank you that Joanne's a saint. Thank you that she has been faithful, and you have been faithful to her, that she's in Christ, that you chose her, that you adopted her, that you accepted her in the beloved, and that you will take her to glory. Thank you for that. She's wealthy. And she lived that way. She was a tremendous witness for Christ. Couldn't be in a sentence with her two minutes before she's mentioning something about the gospel. And her husband's the same way. Been dear friends. But even in death, it's, it's a great thing to know the possessions we have that can't be taken from us even in death. People think death is the end, and that's it. That's not true at all. Not according to God's word. We are wealthy. In fact, it is the doorway into the presence of God in which we are going to be glorified and know the fullness of our redemption. Redemption is still drawing nigh in its fullness. And so that's something to praise God about, and I, I pray you do praise God about that there's a second thing found in our text in Ephesians and it says this in verse number seven in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace so a second thing is this that we have forgiveness we have forgiveness of 
our trespasses, where we've broken uh, the law of God and where we have rebelled against God, we are forgiven. So see, the Bible is saying that through Jesus, we are forgiven of the greatest offenses that we have committed against the Lord. Colossians says it like this, in him in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the whole essence of the word forgiven is to understand is really, well, it also includes the, the release of a person from something, but especially something they were guilty of. And of course, they're guilty here of their trespasses against God. So it would be right. It would be right to exact justice on that person and administer justice to that person because of their sin. But, but through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, the person is released from the punishment and penalty that God had on that person and that he could inflict upon that person. So see here, forgiveness, and another way of saying forgiveness in Scripture is remission. Maybe we we don't get the understanding of that word because we don't use it much, but here's a simple way to understand it. It means to send send it away. That God, in his forgiveness, he sends it away. Like the scripture says, as far as the east is from the west to the bottom of the sea, he throws it. He blots out our sins from even from memory, from his memory. And and as a cloud is blotted out and vanishes, so will our sin be blotted out and vanish. So he is speaking here and it is is it not is not total forgiveness something to rejoice about do you realize that there's nothing that could keep us from god because he sent all of it away he's taken care of every bit of our rebellion against him every bit of our trespasses against him it is complete extending to the conscious and unconscious sins in our lives because God knows all things and because Jesus' blood is infinite. Anyone, anyone can be forgiven no matter what their sin is. Total forgiveness is possible only through Jesus Christ. So Jesus entered heaven. He finished with the work of redemption and through Jesus, we are washed from sin. Our lives that have been muddied by and stained by sin, and yet dead sinners have no way at all to remove that sin from themselves. They cannot do it no matter what they do, for the sinner is unclean, polluted, as it were, by the filth of their own sin, and it is Jesus Christ that has the power to cleanse it and to send it away. Like it says in Scripture, wash away your sins, calling on His name. They put those things together. But you know what? Many times I meet Christians who really still don't think they're forgiven. They live, they understand the the theory, but they don't live it practically. They walk around guilt-ridden all day long, 
they walk around with this this conscience that's just wrecked by uh, all the thoughts they have of what has taken place in their life and they don't go back to the cross and look at Jesus and say listen in my possession I have forgiveness of sins for my transgressions all of them all the things that I have done are under the blood of Jesus Christ and are sent away forever because of this I called on Jesus I called on Jesus you know as I was reading I I came across a story about uh, Charles Colson you know Charles Colson was the one that was involved with the Nixon administration had to go to jail for some of the things that happened there and uh, he he said that he was watching uh, an interview on Good Morning in America watching Albert Speer being interviewed if you don't know you don't know who Albert Speer is Speer was was the Hitler confidant whose theological genius kept Nazi factories running throughout World War II that's who he was and he was the only one out of the 24 war criminals tried in Nuremberg to admit his guilt he served 20 years in Spandau prison and he was interviewed uh, and the interviewer referred him to a passage in his early writings and it said there that the interviewer said you have said the guilt uh, can never be forgiven or shouldn't be do you feel this way today after 20 years of prison uh, Colson says that he was never he would never forget the look of pathos on Spears face when he responded I served a sentence of 20 years and I could say that I am a free man my conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment but I can't get rid of the guilt the new book is part of my atoning a clearing of my conscience the interview pressed the point you really don't think you'll ever be able to clear your guilty conscience totally Spear shook his head I don't think it's possible Colson says for 35 years Spear had accepted complete responsibility for his crime during that era his writings were filled with contrition and warnings to avoid his moral sin he desperately sought out expiation all to no avail he says I wanted to write Spear and tell him about Jesus and his death on the cross and about God's forgiveness but there wasn't time after the ABC interview that was his last public statement he died shortly after but you know what I don't think he's alone in that I don't think we re- you realize and I realize sometimes that we have been forgiven by God because of Christ completely totally total forgiveness see and if we don't walk around with that as our possession then you realize how the enemy can manipulate you you realize how your own flesh in the world and people can manipulate you you have to know who you are you have to know your possessions that's why the psalmist was able to say how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is what covered how blessed is the man to whom the lord does not impute iniquity does he impute iniquity to a believer in christ no he cannot anymore he cannot anymore 
He will not anymore. See, that is the promise we have as believers. That our sin accounts are washed clean. Not by a reluctant God, but by a gracious one. Look at verse 7 again. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, which he lavished on us. You understand that the word of God is telling us, listen, our text about our God is not merely a gracious God, but an overwhelmingly gracious God. In other words, there is enough. There, it's overflowing his grace. It doesn't stop. You can't stop God's grace. No amount of sin could hinder God's grace. God's grace is being, that's a great word, lavish. You know, somebody who has a lavish home. You know what that means? They pulled no stops. They, they wrote the big checks to get a lavish home. Well, we have the same thing here. God lavishes on us his grace. And if we realize that, we would say, truly, I don't deserve this, but I am so thankful that God's given it to me. So brethren, that there is no gospel without Jesus Christ. There's no salvation without Jesus Christ. There's no forgiveness without Jesus Christ. There is no Christianity without his death, his shed blood, his atoning substitutionary sacrifice. From the beginning to the end, all of God's gracious purposes are carried out by Christ and in Christ and through Christ. And it is Christ who is the head of the church. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He ascended on high, and he is seated at the right hand of God with all authority and power in heaven and in earth. See, so you have in your possession redemption and forgiveness as something to celebrate. But you have one other thing this morning found in verse number eight it says this in all wisdom and insight well verse number eight it says which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him there's a third thing that we have in our possession you know what it is discernment we have discernment concerning the goal of history. You, you get that? You, you realize that when you read the Word of God, when you see what's in the Word of God, that our overwhelmingly gracious Lord has led His children in on something that is still hidden to most of humanity, and that is the world has a predetermined pattern to it. In our new relationship as friends, remember last time, the Lord lets his friends in on the deal. It's when the Lord said in John 15, verse 15, he says, no longer do I call you slaves. Remember that one? For a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. A slave, master doesn't say to his slave, listen, I want to tell you what my, all my plans. He doesn't even tell his slave anything. He tells his slave what to do. That's it. And the slave does it. But when we become friends, the Bible says there, for all the things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you, to my children. That means that God lets us in on what he's doing. 
He lets us in on his plan. He doesn't want us to be in the dark about not only what he has accomplished, but what he's going to accomplish. He wants us to know what the plans are. And so, this is what we have. We have our Lord graciously giving to us all wisdom and insight. That word wisdom really talks about really objective insight or the being able to know the true nature of God's revelation. You read the word of God, you begin to understand what it says. Understanding, seeing things as they really are from God's point of view. And then he includes another word, insight. Insight is really uh, understanding used in a practical way. It's a subjective apprehension that leads to right action. So he says, in all wisdom and insight. Now all there means every kind of insight and wisdom he gives us. He, he gives us wi- wisdom find in, in Ephesians, skill to live our life. He gives us understanding about how to be filled with the Spirit, how to walk in the Spirit, how to avoid the things of the world. He gives us skill to do that. But do you know that European historians here and there in their writings mention that they have not discovered any kind of plot or rhythm or predetermined plan in history. All that they've discovered is that we go from one emergency to another. And of course, if you read history, you may get that sense. You know, a nation rides and nation falls, you know, armies, wars, crises all over the place. It would seem like, in some ways, from the world's perspective, that we're going from one emergency to the, to the next. But the Word of God says the mystery of His will cannot be unraveled by human ingenuity and human study. It doesn't matter how many PhDs a person has, he's not going to unravel the mystery of God's will unless they become believers in Christ start reading the word of God and start seeing God's will unfold by what God says to us in the word of God. One his, such historian, Andre Morios, concluded this in his writings, the universe is indifferent. Who created it? Why are we here on this puny mud heap spinning in infinite space? I have not the slightest idea, he says, and I am quite convinced that no one else has the least idea why we're here. That is not the conclusion of a few. However, Christians who have faith in the Lord Jesus and his word know that in this world, God has a purpose and it is being worked out. God is, of course, going to make known, and it says in verse number nine, the mystery of his will. To believers, and this understanding is possible because believers have received insight and instruction. They have received insight and instruction. We, every time we look at the word of God, we are receiving insight and instruction about what God's doing. One of them, like I said, is to know how to live wisely in the here and now. For example, those who have received God's gracious redemption and forgiveness of sin gain insight in this sense. The fact that God no longer holds them guilty for their sins. See, that's insight God gives us. And why? Because they have been paid for. 
And furthermore, because of the freedom from the bondage of sin, believers will discern that their new freedom is not for self-consumption, but freedom to serve the living God. We are saved to serve God. Also, it gives us an understanding of God's plan for the ages. If you look at verse number 10 of Ephesians chapter 1, it says this, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In other words, that God has given us, he has given us discernment concerning his plan for the ages. To the view of the administration. Administration is the word used to uh, point to a steward who saw, saw to it that his family affairs were run smoothly. It's the kind of picture. So the word of God is really telling us, of course the, the focus is on Christ, is telling us that one day all things and all people should be in one family in Christ and that is under his headship in the fullness of of times, It is going to take place when the times will have reached their fulfillment. In other words, God is saying, listen, in his program, there is going to be a time where the time is filled up. It comes to a fullness. It comes to an end where the Lord's going to manage those times and that is to purpose in Christ to bring all things in heaven and earth under his headship. And of course, the ESV translates it unite in Christ. Uh, the NIV says to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. Now the reason why they make that translation is because the reason for the translation there is that in at least secular Greek the verb was used of totaling up a column of figures where the total was written on the top or on the head not on the bottom so Christ becomes the top administrator taking care of all of God's program as far as where history is heading and where it's going so under Christ's headship, he brings all things back to regular order or restores all things in heaven and in earth to order. That means that all things outside of Christ are disordered. And until one comes to Christ, that's when they get reordered. It was Frank... Thielman, who said that God has blessed his people by revealing to them something they could not have deduced by themselves. That God is in the process of organizing the entire universe, both its heavenly dimensions and its earthly dimensions around Christ. And the historical course of the universe finds its organizational principles in Christ himself. Now, something interesting in this text that I want to focus your attention on it says in verse number 10, it says, with the view of an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. 
Now, it's using the word plural times. Actually, there's two words he uses here. Fullness and times are put together in this passage of Scripture. And so he's talking about the, the epochs of history, that the only other time the plural of times is used and the term fullness is used in Scripture together had to do with, actually, Luke. I want you to turn there. Luke chapter 21, uh, in verse number 24, And he says there in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, it says, They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So the times until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled is the other place. This plural of times is used in Scripture. The period, in other words, will end when Christ returns to establish his kingdom. That Messiah will come to rule on the earth. Hence, the times are complete, plural, when Christ, Messiah, Rules. Now, the times here, because they're plural, could mean a sequence of events that happen in the end. So the good pleasure which God the Father purposed in Christ for the administration of the fullness of times is that future earthly messianic kingdom. Remember, if you think of it like this, his spiritual kingdom is present in the hearts of those who have been redeemed. His earthly kingdom, though, is in heaven and awaiting his manifestation its manifestation on earth that the earthly messianic kingdom in scripture has been promised in the old testament long ago has been discussed in the gospels over and over again but it was not fulfilled at the ascension of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 1, and it has been hoped for by the church in all places in the Word of God. So Jesus actually went back to heaven to receive a kingdom to bring that kingdom back to earth. So see, the fullness of times is when that begins to happen, is when the world starts getting ordered under Christ when he now is in charge. So when Jesus ascended into heaven, it surprised his disciples because they really hoped that after Jesus rose from the dead in victory, that he would restore the kingdom of Israel immediately. That was in their mind. You can see it all through scripture, but he didn't. At least he was not at that time. Instead, he told them to go wait for the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem and he will give them power to be witnesses and to preach the gospel of the kingdom to all tribes and nations and peoples of all the world and then the end will come. In fact, in Luke chapter 19, just turn back there, in verse 11, Jesus told his disciples by way of a parable that he would be going away and then he would be coming back again. For it says in verse number 19, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem 
and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. That was in their mind. Wait, Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the grave. Uh, uh, it's it's going to happen, right? So this is what he says in verse number 12. So he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Now what Jesus was doing, he was telling his disciples that he was a king. And that the kingdom was in heaven with the Father. And that he was not going to establish it at that time. He was going to go back to heaven where he would receive the kingdom and then he would come back as a king and rule the earth in strict righteousness and judgment. So this is when all things start getting summed up in Christ. If you read the passage again in verse number 10 of Ephesians 1 it says with a view of an administration suitable to the fullness of times that is the summing up of all things in Christ things in heaven and in earth so see in other words in the millennium in the thousand year reign of Christ everything will be restored and brought together under Christ this is the only time the word of God shows us that this is going to happen under one head this does not suggest, though, that everyone will be saved then. Instead, sin's disorder will be removed and the universal peace, of course, at that time will be established. And many passages tell us of that. So it is that time that is called the fullness of the times for which all creation, animate and inanimate, has longed throughout all history that the millennium, the first phase of this two-phase program, and the eternal state are the times when chaos will be removed and universal peace established under the headship and leadership of Jesus Christ. So the future messianic age will be a time of restoration and harmony under one person and that would be the focus so in other words he's saying listen you christians you have something else you have knowledge of what's going to happen you have knowledge of the end in fact uh without going into detail or reading more of the scripture it says in uh luke passage of scripture it says in verse 31 so also when you see these things happening recognize the kingdom of God is near. That means the kingdom of God that comes to the earth in the millennial reign. And then, of course, the Lord takes care of everything. Um, at that time, the earth is refurbished and restored. Uh, this old earth that's under a curse. And then, of course, Satan is bound during that time. And uh, the Lord reigns. His saints reign with him. And at the end, there will be war. And then the Lord will, of course, put down Satan and his enemies that come against Jerusalem, and therefore he will, will go into the eternal state, and there we will be with the Lord forever and ever. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. So see, that's what Christians know. That's what we look forward to. So to think this life is the end and death is the end and that's it, you die, go to the grave like an animal and you know you get eaten up by worms and, and that's it. That's what your life's about. Who wouldn't be depressed about that? 
anybody be depressed about that. That's no end. This end is glorious. This end means we have it all. We're heirs with Christ. We have it all. See, if we don't think like this, we can't celebrate. If we don't think like this, we cannot praise God. Because bad times are going to come. Difficult times are going to come. In this world, we have tribulation. God even says that, right? He's not holding back on us. This world is tough. But we have a hope, brethren. We have much to praise God about and celebrate. We have redemption. We are set free. We have forgiveness. Sins that are sent away and our count is made clean. We have wisdom and insight to know how to live wisely and also to understand God's plan for the ages. There's going to come a time where time's going to be filled up. The times of the Gentiles are going to be come to an end and Christ is going to come to this earth and reign. That's the kingdom of God. And we're going to be with him in the kingdom of God. And that's a hope we have. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your great kindness to us.